We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. Welcome to a special edition of KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, as part of the national I'm Listening campaign, promoting awareness about suicide prevention and mental health, we're going to be bringing you stories of crisis and resilience from right here in the Bay Area. You're triggering me very easily, um, reminding me of the event. There are some days where I go home and I cry, and that's just what is necessary. This is the healing part of the work that I've been very invested in actually picks up the phone to call, someone needs to be there to support that person. We've got three stories for you on the program today, each one highlighting a different mental health challenge that residents have faced over the past year. Also, highlighting the work of those who have been standing up to offer support. And just so you know what to expect, the folks in these stories are confronting some pretty deep pain, sometimes even trauma. But they'll also be finding healing and support from a variety of sources. And we're going to be bringing both sides of that to you, starting with this story. On the morning of May 26th, a maintenance worker for VTA, the Valley Transportation Authority, entered the rail yard where he worked in San Jose and opened fire, killing nine of his co-workers and himself in what is now the deadliest mass shooting in Bay Area history. The pain and loss from that attack has touched thousands of lives. But in the wake of this tragedy, the South Bay community is coming together and finding ways to heal. I spoke with a few of them about what that all-too-slow process has looked like. John Courtney was not enjoying his trip to Florida. I didn't want, I didn't want help, and I stepped off the plane. I called my wife, and I said, I'm coming home. I'm getting on the next plane home. He'd flown all the way across the country to enter a rehab center for treatment of post-traumatic stress. But now that he was there, he was only feeling more angry. He managed to push through his misgivings, deciding to stay, but his anger remained even as he began therapy. I got in 
arguments with therapists and psychiatrists. I, I actually organized the entire group therapy session a few times to walk out on the therapist because they were five minutes late or, it, we, you know, we, we made up, I, I would make up a, you know, a reason why the therapist was inadequate and they all rallied behind me. Courtney actually has quite a bit of experience rallying groups of people. He's the president of ATU Local 265, a union representing VTA workers, including workers who were killed during May's mass shooting. When Courtney arrived at the rehab center, the trauma left behind by that day was still overwhelming. All these weird things that were just going through my mind and um, had no control over them. I literally was out of control, totally not myself and, and um, completely out of control. What Courtney had seen would haunt anybody, because on the morning of May 26th, he was at VTA's Guadalupe Light Rail Yard to check in with members of his union, and he was in the room when the shooting began. In fact, Courtney was speaking with the shooter, Samuel Cassidy, just moments before Cassidy opened fire. I turned my head, and the second that I turned my head away from Sam, he, I just started hearing cap, 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 and at first I thought it had been a breaker. He dove into the corner and waited for what would come next. As I'm, as I'm in the corner, um, I'm thinking to myself that I'm, my destiny is to get shot today, and, and there's no getting around it. But the bullet he was expecting never came, and eventually, Courtney did make it out of that room. Six others, though, did not. And you, you knew many of the victims well? I knew every single one of them. Everyone's heart is broken. The days and weeks that followed the shooting saw a massive outpouring of grief for the victims. We can't sleep thinking about the families. And as the region mourned, Courtney entered into a downward spiral. Lashing out at people, lashing out at um, in meetings. Things were triggering me very easily, um, reminding me of the event. It was really getting um, to a point where I couldn't sleep at night. I was waking up with night terrors. He says there were nights when he would wake up screaming so loudly he would wake up his entire house. Not wanting to be a nuisance to others many nights, he didn't sleep at all. And on those nights, I would just constantly play the tape of that incident over and over in my mind. And it never changed. It was always the same. It was always horrible. The trauma from that day has been a heavy load to bear for Courtney and for many, many others. The ripple effects of this incident go out far into the community, more probably than the public is aware of, you know, from what they've just seen on the news. That's Sue Cronin. Since the shooting took place, she's been a key part of the crisis response. As a director for the Bill Wilson Center, she led a team that arrived the morning of the incident to provide counseling and support to victims' family members. In the months since, the need for this counseling has not let up. Members have my cell phone. I've been able to respond immediately to members who are in crisis. And there have been quite a few crises to respond to. Last month, a VTA employee who witnessed the shooting, Henry Gonzalez, died by suicide. The news of his loss shocked and traumatized grieving workers all over again. I don't even know how many phone calls I had the day after um, Henry took his life. Coordinating care for the thousands of people who are impacted by the attack has been a massive undertaking. And Santa Clara County, the district attorney's office, and VTA have all played a role. As for Cronin and her team, they've been spending their days on site with workers, keeping a watchful eye out for signs of distress. And they were really a team. And, um, you know, we would, we would say, hey, you better go. Maybe you should talk to, you know, and they already knew. Nine out of ten times it was, I just talked to them, you know. 
As a union leader, John Courtney has been working closely with Cronin to help get support out to his members. Meantime, he's also been getting support for his own trauma, and little by little, he's been making progress. Returning to his experience at the rehab facility in Florida, he says his acting out in class continued for about a month after he first arrived, until finally he let his guard down enough to receive help. Just one example of what that looked like. He says uh, he got into yet another angry dispute, this time with the instructor for a class on breathing exercises. But then he had a pretty big change of heart. After I skipped out of her class three different times in protest, I found out that she was from Philly. And I just, we both chalked it off to, hey, we're both from Philly and we're both angry anyway. <laughs> so I started going to the breathing and it was really helpful. It was like, what the heck was I thinking? I missed out on this all this time through anger, but it was so helpful. So yeah. things like that, you know, they were... A complicated journey. Yeah, absolutely. Totally, totally, totally. The treatment has made a difference. In fact, Courtney just crossed a major milestone. On a recent Saturday morning, he decided he was ready to return to the room where the shooting took place. I had to face it because it, it, the, the picture was not getting out of my mind. And I texted, please do not go by yourself. Sue Cronin was still in pajamas drinking her morning cup of coffee when she got the text from Courtney. All the same, she rushed over. I, you know, quick change and headed down to Guadalupe because I wanted to make sure that he had support. I said quite a few prayers and, and um, I, was able to, I was able to get through it. Um, and I really felt, felt good about that. So the last vision I have of that place right now that was my hell is not, you know, a lot of people's hell is not that way any longer. Yeah. Do you feel like you, the fact that you were able to do that, does, do, you, do you feel like that signals that you've turned a corner? Right when you think you turn a corner, you face something else. That's kind of how it's been, like these kind of roller coasters, up and down, up and down, and up and down. The path towards healing has looked different for everyone. With demand for mental health services already high and resources limited, wait times have often been quite long, and some have struggled to find timely care. In light of that strain, the county is drawing up plans to create a dedicated trauma recovery center with the aim of coordinating relief efforts for this and future traumatic events. And with the memory of the 2019 Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting still fresh in the South Bay, it's a project that's taking on growing urgency. In this past year, you've all been hit with a lot. The pandemic, racial tensions and violence, politics, wildfires. Sue Cronin again, delivering a presentation on stress management and coping skills that she's presented to VTA workers many times now. It's another way that she and her team are offering support. So the magic steps of critical incident stress management are to acknowledge and express how you Does this work, having this level of hands-on care, does it take a toll on you? It does, yeah. I definitely feel um, this has been long and intense. Cronin tells me that since May 26th, there have hardly been any days that she hasn't worked with VTA. But she says making sure that support is available for people when they need it is critical. There's that stigma still, you know, around mental health that, oh, if I call and admit I'm having a hard time, is that going to impact me negatively in some way? So if someone actually picks up the phone to call, someone needs to be there to support that person. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're offering a special presentation, part of the national I'm Listening campaign, dedicated to raising awareness about suicide prevention and ending stigma through conversation. 
And we are covering a lot of difficult topics today, so for anyone having a tough time, a reminder that support is always just a phone call away. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. You'll find free and confidential support offered 24 hours a day. Now on to our next story of mental health challenge and community support from here in the Bay Area. For many years, if somebody made an emergency call asking for help with a mental health crisis, the response they'd get, more often than not, would have been a team of police officers. But a growing number have begun questioning that approach, which too many times has turned deadly when responding officers have used lethal force against the person in crisis. Now, cities and counties throughout the country are deploying new, specially trained and equipped teams to offer a different kind of response. That includes San Francisco, which last year launched its Street Crisis Response Team program. KCBS's Kathy Novak recently tagged along with one of the three-member teams as it responded to a call to learn what they're doing differently. Fish response bag, some oxygen. Community paramedic James Lee is packing up the van, getting ready to head out on a call. We've also got some uh, naloxone or Narcan. Um, if we do come across somebody having an overdose, we can utilize that. I'm riding with Lieutenant Jonathan Baxter, public information officer for the San Francisco Fire Department. You're looking for the person. They find who they're looking for inside a parked car in the Tenderloin. It looks like their windshield is completely smashed in. Yeah, and you know, and that's that's going to be a sign of there's there's something going on here. This person definitely needs help. There's a fire extinguisher on the other side of the car. He's lying um, on the reclined driver's seat, bare feet sticking out of the broken windshield. Garbage and drug paraphernalia are spilling out onto the sidewalk. This gentleman is not very communicative, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to our vehicle and... Uh, we do have his first and last name and date of birth, and I'm going to see if there's some collateral information I can find out about him. That's Roland Brower. He's a peer counselor. It's a key position on this three-person crisis response team. All the peers, we, we bring, like, lived experience. So in my case, um, you know, um, I've experienced homelessness. You know, I'm a recovering drug addict. Um, I've had involvement in the criminal justice system. So when, when, we, when I arrive on scene, I think of it as, you know, like, like the person that we're, we're interacting with is in a hole. And Roland is in a unique position to honestly say to that person, I've been in a hole too. Someone is watching on as Roland and his colleagues tend to the person behind the smashed windshield. I live in this, I live in this building here. His name is Troy, and he says the man in the car, who we'll call Sam, used to be his neighbor. He's never done this. This is, this is new, new to him. Troy says Sam had some troubles, moved out of the building and into his car, and lately, with parking tickets piling up, he's worried about losing the car, too. He, he uh, kicked, out, kicked out the windshield of his car, and he was walking around with his sucking his thumb uh, with his pants around his ankles, walking up and down the street, just, you know, acting real weird. Troy says neighbors called 911 knowing the street crisis response team and not the police would show up. To the third member of the team, mental health specialist Allie Breslin, that shift is huge. I, I think it's monumental. I, I really think that it's something that's been uh, necessary for a long time. Well, I think it's wonderful because a lot of the people that we engage with, they have a mistrust for law enforcement and authority, you know, in, in general, you know. 
This, says Lieutenant Baxter, is about reimagining how the city delivers on public safety. So law enforcement can respond to law enforcement calls. Behavioral crisis can respond to behavioral crisis. Fire can respond to fire, and the list goes on. Different specialties and different tools, along with the Narcan and medical supplies in the crisis van. What's the most popular item? Uh, usually water and snacks, you know. Um, for a lot of our clients, they're, you know, they're unhoused, and, and uh, just some fresh water and, and some food um, goes a long way. So. We've resolved crises with a burrito, and we've <laughs> resolved crises, um, you know, we're really stepping it up with uh, crisis stabilization. Ali says most calls are resolved on site. This particular crisis is one of the less common cases needing more drastic measures. After spending about an hour on the scene, the team has decided Sam is a danger to himself, and they're putting him on what's known as a 5150 hold, meaning he could be involuntarily confined for psychiatric treatment for up to 72 hours. This is kind of like a last resort for us, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like when, when all other interventions fail, this is what we have to do. Handling the immediate crisis, Roland hopes, is just the first step. I always ask people, you know, you know, without, you know, without prying in, you know, and I always preface it with, you know, no judgment, but can, they can tell me a little bit about their substance use, you know. And then I always, you know, uh, um, I, I always offer or, you know, ask them if they'd be interested in treatment at all, you know, because I do know that, you know, it's also a, a good segue into housing and, you know, mental health and all that. So I do ask and I offer people treatment all the time. Do they take it? Occasionally. Troy is glad to see his neighbor getting some help. He knows what it's like to need it. He's sober after a 30-year meth addiction. I used to be a hopeless dope fiend. Now I'm a dopeless hope fiend. <laughs> he says pretty much everyone in the building has been through rough times. We do. We, do, we look out for everybody out here. That kind of support, says Ali, can make all the difference to anyone who's struggling. You know, if you have someone to reach out to, absolutely pick up that phone. Um, the, the friend on the other side of the receiving call is going to be so happy that you reached out then to know that, you know, you were down and out. And if you see someone who you think might be having a crisis, the message is to call 911 and describe the situation so the right team can respond. You do this every day and you deal with people having the worst day of their lives. How do you feel about the work that you do, and how do you handle it? That's a really good question, and um, you know, thanks for thanks for asking it. You know, the best part about this team is that we're three-person team members, and every call we talk about it and we debrief with each other, and that I think, at least for me personally, really helps process the sort of stuff that we see on the street. I, I'm a human too. There are some days where I go home and I cry, and that's just what is necessary for what we're dealing with and for what we're holding with these clients. Um, and in a way, that can be self-care as well. These crisis teams have responded to around 2,500 calls since the program launched in November. About half of the situations they handle would have previously been a job for police, and less than one in ten results in a person being placed in an involuntary psychiatric hold. This is one of those calls. Sam cooperates as he's helped into a gurney. Roland and the team will follow behind the ambulance that's taking him to the hospital. It's a little heartbreaking, but then it's a little optimistic because, you know, we did, we were able to, he's going to get to the hospital and get some help, you know, and um, yeah, so it's kind of bittersweet, <laughs> you know.
And that was KCBS's Kathy Novak speaking with members of San Francisco's Street Crisis Response Team. Once again, this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, today offering special coverage, highlighting mental health resources in the Bay Area, part of the national I'm Listening campaign. Continuing on now to our final story. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the Bay Area's Asian-American community has confronted a surge in racist hate crimes and abuse. It's robbed many of their sense of personal safety, even in their own neighborhoods. And all this has taken a mental health toll. KCBS contributor Jenna Lane has been speaking with mental health experts and advocates about the current crisis of racial trauma and why for many, it's nothing new. You won't find it in the diagnostic manual for mental health care providers, but more of them are saying maybe we should. It is racial trauma. It can stem from a violent racist event in someone's life, like a hate crime, or it could come from a buildup over years of subtle slights, of harassment, of being denied service, a job, the quiet enjoyment of a park, a lifetime of judgment that you have not earned. The symptoms of racial trauma might look a lot like those of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, nightmares, avoiding the outside world, being on alert or hypervigilant all the time. For Martin Lee, racial trauma stemmed from multiple hateful events and their buildup over time. As a child of Korean immigrants growing up in a mostly white community, racist bullying had him desperate to be someone else. I just remember now looking back, I mean, it was vivid in my mind then, but I kind of buried it all away pretty much every day just wanting to be white. Living in white America, I just wanted to be white. Compounding his pain, Lee felt like he could not talk about it. By the time he was in college, he began to have suicidal thoughts and got treatment after surviving a suicide attempt. He became a teacher and retired, and then... With the pandemic happening, and then George Floyd, and then all the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, I just totally reassessed my life and was like, you know, what am I doing? And what's going on in the world? And I had this awakening and things from my past started coming back to me. And then uh, in February, I had just read this story about this woman in Seattle who had just been beaten with a sock full of rocks. And it just totally floored me. And I was, I, I was just in tears. Um, and... Uh, it just, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> um, and I started making these comics almost as therapy. His comic strip, The Other Ones, tries to normalize difference and help people feel less like the other. If they can help other people because they are comics, and my story is the same as everyone else's story. I mean, everyone has suffered trauma in some way. Dr. Sherry Wang, an associate professor at Santa Clara University and a licensed psychologist, set out to document that violence. In the spring of 2020, she began to ask Asian Americans who had experienced racism what happened. As well as aftermath, right? I think a main point that I really, really wanted to make um, in the research, right, through the research process and now, you know, and now disseminating my research findings is really that Racism isn't just what happened to you in the moment. It also includes what didn't happen. 
So this includes the apathy of the bystanders, the silence that follows, um, the feelings that people do not validate for you, um, and then the story then that you never, ever tell. And so it's actually much easier to have other people see the overt, the direct, and the indisputable physical violence. And and it's the covert and the indirect and subtle racism that we um, maintain, actually, by overlooking it. I wondered if you could explain to a non-clinician what it is that makes racism or the experience of it so difficult from that mental health standpoint. Yeah, yes, I can definitely talk about that. Racism is so traumatizing. You know, in the field of mental health, and especially as a clinician, I often am having to um, help folks differentiate um, guilt from shame, right? Guilt is, is you know, um, feeling bad about something that you've done, right? Versus shame is, is feeling bad about who you are, because you, you, you can't change it. It's just your being, your essence. It's not about what you can do or change, or it's just that is what racism is, right? That there's so much shame then because you are being treated poorly and you're being discriminated against and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And the reason you're being treated so poorly is not because of anything you've done, right? Um, it is because of what people have assumed about you. It messes with your head so much because you are trying to perspective take, right? Of like why people are treating me this way. And it's wrong. You know it's wrong. Um, but there's nothing you can do about it. There was truly nothing Dr. Satsuki Ina could have done about where her life began. I, I sometimes tell people I was born doing time. I was born in a concentration camp, an American concentration camp during World War II. Uh, my parents uh, lived in San Francisco and were removed from their home shortly after Pearl Harbor was bombed and um, uh, based on their race. Today, she's a psychotherapist who specializes in trauma. She has interviewed hundreds of Japanese Americans who share her family's experience. Many people have said to me that one of the most painful aspects of their incarceration during World War II is that nobody stood up for us. Nobody organized petitions or marches or outrage, you know, collective outrage. There were certainly people who helped uh, neighbors, uh, but, uh, you know, as people were being disappeared from their jobs and the classrooms and the farms, um, you know, uh, America turned their back on us. That's part of why she co-founded an organization that stands up for immigrant detainees. The strengthening part of that trauma experience in my own family is recognizing when it's happening to other communities. Uh, this is the healing part of the work that I've been very invested in, uh, which is uh, to work in solidarity with other communities that are being targeted. Healing circles that Dr. Ina first led among Japanese Americans are growing now nationwide, with about 150 facilitators trained in racial trauma. Certainly Latinx, African-American, Native American. We have had formerly incarcerated uh, individuals who, who um, have been trained, members of the Sikh community. Uh, we've worked with the Jewish organization. So many. And it's, it's been pretty exciting. Is there something particular about a group versus an individual um, that you feel is especially uh, effective in healing from racial trauma? Yeah, empathy. 
Empathy is a powerful treatment. You could call it a cure for racism trauma. And that was trauma specialist and advocate Satsuki Ina speaking with KCBS contributor Jenna Lane. This has been a special edition of KCBS In-Depth, part of the national I'm Listening campaign dedicated to raising awareness about suicide prevention and ending stigma through conversation. Once again, want to throw out that crisis line number that'll put you in touch with a counselor of whatever city you might be in 24 hours a day. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. Also, a quick reminder that the I'm Listening program will be available online at kcbsradio.com. Additional resources can also be found at imlistening.org. And a big thanks to everyone who contributed to the program today. Uh, As you heard, lots of incredible work going on out there, all making sure that no matter who you are or what you're facing, there's always somebody ready to listen. Thank you for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 